Hey everyone, how are you? Everyone doing all right today? All right, my name's Eric, I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I want to welcome you as Alex uh, said and, and Pastor Dan said, welcome to the first week of Jonah. Uh, we are really, really excited about this series. I, I've been talking to, to Dan about it. Um, Dan was saying that for uh, like multiple years, three years now, he's wanted to talk through the book of Jonah. And uh, last year, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the book of Jonah for a seminary project that I was working on. And I just think it's a, a great, a great book. We're going to be spending four weeks in it, basically a chapter a week. And you're going to be hearing for this series, you're going to be hearing from me and Pastor Dan. Pastor Mark is away on vacation with his family in California for the next two to three weeks, just taking some downtime and getting a breather. And uh, he'll be back, but Dan and I are going to own this, and we're really, really pumped to talk to you about it. So we're just going to essentially jump right in. I'm going to give you just a little bit of a background and some of the context of Jonah, and then we're going to just walk through the text together, because I think the text speaks, actually shouts to us, and I don't have to do a whole lot of um, mining for what Jonah's going to say to us. But so that we have some sort of context, I'll just tell you a little bit briefly about what Jonah is like as a, as a whole body of work. Uh, it was written sometime in the mid-700s BC. It is a, uh, a prophetic book. It's a, it's a book of the prophets. The, it's considered a minor prophet. Um, and Jonah is... Uh, I will tell you this from a little bit from a geeky point of view. Jonah is hilarious. Uh, it is a very, very funny book. And sometimes I think we just need to pause and realize that as people of God, that, that these writers of scripture and these people who, who set these words down, they were human beings and they had a sense of humor. And so I don't know how much of it will translate from the 700 BCs to the 21st century, but there is so much in Jonah that is just really, really funny. There's irony, there's satire, there's extremes. Jonah is a book that either things are just totally awful in or they are awesome. You know, and so you're just gonna see like these polarizing words, polarizing language in Jonah. There's a lot of play on words and just a lot of situations that, that really don't make sense and that if we really kind of pause and put on our geeky glasses, uh, we would snicker at and go, boy, isn't God funny. But um, that's essentially what we're gonna start with. And, and after this, I'm just gonna start in with the text. So if you have a Bible uh, and you want to have a little Old Testament challenge, if anyone can find the book of Jonah within five seconds in the Bible, I will buy you a free cup of coffee. No, 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 no takers. It's, it's right next to Obadiah. Is that helpful to anybody? Everyone's like, Obadiah. Thank heavens that our Bibles have tables of contents in them. I, that's all I got to say. So I'm going to uh, just start reading. The text is going to be on your screen. And the text starts this way. It says, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. And the first two verses of the book of Jonah, we get told an awful lot. And so I'm just going to tell you what we are told. 
In the first verse, it says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah. So the first thing we say is, well, who's Jonah? Jonah is a, is a guy who lives uh, somewhere in the mid 700s BC. We know from another reference in the Bible that around 770 BC, he stands up, he rises up, and he goes to the current king of Israel, a guy named Jeroboam, essentially telling Jeroboam all the things that he's doing wrong in the eyes of God. Jonah is, uh, is a prophet, and we'll find out a little bit more about that in a second. But timing-wise, that's where he falls, around 700, 770 BC. Now, interestingly enough, and this is one of the things that sets up some of the irony of the book of Jonah, Jonah's name, Jonah, son of Amittai, it's in the text, translated means roughly dove of faithfulness. Jonah is the dove of faithfulness. I was thinking about this last night and I was like, oh, you know, I should get something that represents the dove of faithfulness. And I wandered around my house. I didn't have a dove. So I, I had a, uh, just so we remember, I had a chicken. So for our purposes today, this is the chicken of faithfulness to remind us. So, The dove of faithfulness is his name. He rises up. He confronts the king of Israel with his mistakes, his transgressions. And then we're also told this. The Lord gives this message. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Because I've seen how wicked its people are. So Nineveh, we know now this is where he's supposed to go. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So we're going to get a little bit uh, historical ge geography here. This is the Assyrian Empire at its apex around 600 BC. Now we just spent, in Esther, we spent a lot of time talking about the Persian Empire. King, uh, King Xerxes with the Persians. This is a different empire. It's a different group of people all together. In actuality, the Persians are not a bad group of people as far as ancient empires go. They actually are pretty permissive. When they conquer a land, they, can, they tend to allow people to continue on with their way of life. Worship the gods you want to worship. It's fine. The Assyrians are cut from an entirely different cloth. The Assyrians, even in the context of ancient Near Eastern culture, tend to excel at being the worst of the worst. They are big, bad boys. Now, because in Esther, again, we learned all about the, the great uh, friendly lunch topic of impalement, I'm not going to go into the details of what the Assyrians were really like. But there are a lot of archaeological writings that say that these guys essentially have perfected the art of brutality and torture in this culture. They're just writing upon writing about when the Assyrians come to town, this is what to expect, and none of it is pleasant. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is their capital city. Nineveh and the Assyrians at this point in time, basically it's Israel's arch enemy. So this is God telling this man who has already confronted his own king that you need to go to the people that don't like you, the people that are opposed to you, the people that hate you and you hate them and go 
and pronounce this message. So, Jonah is one of these people that we call a prophet. That's what it says in 2 Kings. Essentially, we know that from the text because there's a formula in the Bible for these people called prophets. And if you look through all the books of the Bible that are prophetic books, they almost all start the same way. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so, get up, go. And so from all that sort of evidence, we know that Jonah is considered a prophet. So who are prophets? Well, prophets are essentially men and women who are given a specific vocation by God to do certain specific things. They act the same way. They have specific agendas in the world. The formula is always get up and go. God gives you a message. You get up and you go. And when a prophet shows up, they destroy tranquility. They kill complacency. When a prophet walks in the room, they tell you to wake up. No matter if it's their own king or if it's the king of another nation or if it's a group of religious leaders, when a prophet shows up, he wants you to choose. He wants you to sort of go one way or the other. It's kind of like this. In our lives or in in nations or in governments or in churches, over time, it becomes easier and easier to let things slide. It becomes easy to let an injustice go. It becomes easy to allow drift to happen, to see parts of our lives get out of whack with maybe what we really believe. And sometimes we can come to tolerate this. A prophet shows up to essentially say, One injustice is too much injustice. A little bit of drift is too much drift. One area of your life that's out of whack is one area too many out of whack. Essentially, their message is, this isn't good enough from God's perspective. And furthermore, if you read any of the prophetic books, you know that they also tend to accompany with, not only is this good enough, let me tell you where this is headed If you don't change, they're powerful people, strong personalities. They force you to choose. But being a prophet is not a pleasant vocation. If you know any of the stories of the prophets, it's actually very embarrassing. It's hard to be a prophet. It's lonely. But it's also very awkward because God is typically not content with having his prophets just speak the words A lot of times, God will tell the prophets, you have to show people what this looks like. So we read stories in the Bible of a guy named Hosea, who's a prophet. And God says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. Hosea, she's going to be unfaithful to you. Hosea, every time she's unfaithful to you, you need to welcome her back. And Hosea, I want you to do this because my people need to know that this is what they've done to me. That they are unfaithful like a prostitute. But that I will continue to welcome them back. God tells other prophets, you know what you need to do? You need to take your clothes off and you need to walk naked through the streets of Jerusalem. Why? Because my people have lost their sense of shame. And they need to realize that when they think they're all right, They're actually naked and shameless. So being a prophet 
is no easy vocation, especially if you are concerned at all with keeping up appearances, with kind of making sure that people know you're all put together. And this, we're told, is who Jonah is. The formula is such that when it's in the text, we are supposed to read this as Jonah is a prophet. The Lord gave this message, get up and go. It's a prophetic message. So let's go see what happens. Verse three, Jonah gets up, because that's what prophets do. Jonah gets up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Okay, so the dove of faithfulness doesn't really, I don't know how, chick, how well chickens fly, but the dove of faithfulness certainly does not fly in the direction that his God has told him to go. He flies in the opposite direction. Now, what's the deal with Tarshish? Because even though in, in this translation of the Bible, it says Tarshish twice, in another translation of the Bible, it actually highlights this even more. I'm just gonna read it real quick. This is a more literal translation of this verse. Jonah rose up, there's the prophet. The prophet rises up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to where? Paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to where? From the presence of the Lord. Now when you are studying the Bible, anytime you see that level of repetition, particularly in one verse, your antenna should start going up. Like this writer really wants us to know about Tarshish. What's the deal with Tarshish? Why is it such a big deal? I will show you why it's such a big deal. We have another little map for us. Now, if you see Joppa is over here, kind of on the right side, on the eastern side. You see that uh, straight up from that is Nineveh. Jonah is somewhere in between those two dots. You see where Tarshish is? Tarshish is about as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly get in that world. In fact, Tarshish is considered to be the most known western part of civilization. You could get no further west than Tarshish. And it's just to highlight how much Jonah is going in the opposite direction, the dove of faithfulness going in the opposite direction to his call. But think about this for a second. If we take the Bible seriously, and the book of 2 Kings and, and this formula tells us Jonah's a prophet. It's not like Jonah doesn't know better. The text says that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord, but I don't think Jonah is really fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I think Jonah knows better. If Jonah is a prophet, he knows that the God in Joppa is the God in Nineveh and is also the God in Tarshish. Jonah knows he can't escape from God by going to Tarshish. But I do think Jonah thinks he can forget about God in Tarshish. I do think that Jonah is thinking, if I just go far away where nobody knows me and they don't know what I've been told, 
and they won't ask me uncomfortable questions that maybe I can turn up the noise in my life enough and be distracted just enough that I don't have to pay attention to this nagging voice in my ear saying, get up and go. So he goes down to Joppa, he gets on a boat, and he starts sailing. Verse four. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. So a couple things real quick. We know that these guys are not following the same God that Jonah is following. We're told in the text, they have gods. These are not Jonah's people. These are outsiders to Jonah's insiders. They are crying out to their gods, save us, they're nervous. I've been to Guatemala twice now and and each time, you know, when you're, when you're driving through the traffic and you're driving on these crazy mountain roads, um, I always tell people that I never panic unless the locals are panicking. So, you know, we drive by a bus and you're like six inches away. But if you see like the folks that live there and they're like, no, it's cool. I'm like, it's cool. But if you see like the folks that drive on those roads, if they start to sweat, then I'm sweating. And if you see sailors start to throw stuff overboard, I want to suggest to you that like it's getting pretty serious. And Jonah's starting to panic. Or is he? Because we're told that at this point, the dove of faithfulness has not done anything. In fact, this is what's happening. All this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God and maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. This outsider is going to the prophet of God and saying, "Um, maybe you should pray because the dove of faithfulness isn't really doing what he's supposed to be doing. And the guy is asking, will your God be compassionate in the middle of all this? Jonah is continuing this check out of the whole situation. He's sleeping. He's turned his back on these men, and, and I don't know if they're women on the ship, but these people who are taking him somewhere, who he's sharing this with, and he's basically like, I'm sleeping, I'm out of this. You guys handle it. But it doesn't end there. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused this terrible storm. And I love this next part. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. And I don't know what casting lots look like, but I just imagine like they're just like, it's that guy. And Jonah's like, like whistling, like, and you know, I don't know what he's doing at that point. They go to him. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What's your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? And Jonah responds this way. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now, if you were a person living in this culture, 
and you were in the middle of a storm that was destroying your boat. And somebody says, I serve the God that made the sea and the land. You took that seriously. In our culture, we might shrug it off. We might not pay attention to it. These people believed. So this guy says, I worship the Lord. Now, I would actually point out to you that Jonah hasn't even prayed at this point. Jonah's been sleeping. I don't know how much worshiping of the Lord Jonah's been doing right now, but he claims this is what I've done. But notice what he does not say. They ask him, who are you? What's your identity? What is your line of work? What does the prophet of God not say? He does not say, I'm a prophet. So the dove of faithfulness continues to actually be the chicken of faithlessness. And he's rejecting so much of who he is and what he's been called to. And the response is awesome. I worship the God of sea and land. We're in the middle of a storm. They respond this way. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running from the Lord, the God of the sea and the land. Well, why did you do it? They groaned. They turned to Jonah and they're like, are you crazy? We're in the middle of a boat. You are running from the God of sea and land. This is not smart, Jonah. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, this is awesome. They asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? I think Jonah would be like, I don't know, buy me a smoothie, maybe. Blimey, limey, I don't know. So it comes to it, right? This is essentially one of the, the critical points of this chapter. And Jonah responds this way. He says, throw me into the sea and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is my fault. And a piece of us, I think, resonates with that because we're like, oh, Jonah's taking responsibility Jonah's saying like, yes, I've done it. I've made a mistake. It's my fault. But there are two problems with Jonah's statement. The first problem is this. He says, throw me into the sea and it'll get better. What Jonah says is, get rid of me. Take my life. It'll be better. Sacrifice me. It'll be better. God will stop. The problem with this is that the God that Jonah claims to know and serve does not tolerate human sacrifice. God says in the Old Testament, you will not sacrifice human beings to me because that's what all these other gods do. And yet, the prophet of God says, sacrifice me, take my life. The insider has seemed to have lost the grasp on what it means to follow his God. And the second thing that's related to this is that Jonah, even as he admits that this is his fault, even that he, as he admits, I have not obeyed, by asking them to throw him overboard, you know what he's done? Jonah's given up on God long before God's given up on Jonah. 
Jonah's basically said, I've blown it. I've blown it so much. Just throw me overboard. Get this thing over with. Because there's no way I can recover from this. But these men that he's sailing with, these outsiders, these guys that don't know God, watch what they do. They refuse. At first, in, the text says the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them and they couldn't make it. Now get this. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Now has Jonah cried out to the Lord yet? No. But these outsiders have woken up. They've cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God, Oh Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. So when God's prophet, when the dove of faithfulness has still not been faithful, these outsiders offer a prayer up. They cry out to God, God, please don't take our lives. And then the text says this. It gets too much. The sailors do pick Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. So you have the ultimate irony as the prophet goes overboard and the people who are the outsiders now are worshiping God and offering sacrifices to him. It is a complete topsy-turvy, upside-down situation. The dove of faithfulness is now swimming in the, the ocean. And then chapter 1 ends this way, and actually uh, Pastor Dan's going to kind of fold this into his talk. So verse 17 says, The Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. This is the part that we all know and love. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and nights. So that's the text. And as I was reading it, I got to thinking that there are three questions that this text speaks to me. And so I was thinking that maybe this text would speak the same three questions to us today. So I just want to leave you with them. The first question is this. The word of God comes to Jonah and tells him to go where? To Nineveh. Where's your Nineveh? For Jonah, this was the place that he would not go. This was the place where his enemies lived. This was the place where the people who did not look like him, didn't think like him, were opposed to him, all lived. It was the border that Jonah would not, did not want to cross. And I think that maybe for, for us in the 21st century, we still have Ninevehs in our life. Where is yours? And is God calling you to it? Is it a political border that you want to cross where you go, I will not go talk to those people. I won't be with those people. They think differently than me. They vote differently than me. They have different values. Is it a political border? Is your Nineveh a socioeconomic border? God, wherever you tell me to go, don't tell me to go there. I would really not rather deal with 
those people? Is it another border that God is calling you to cross? Because if we take the text seriously, then we take the, te- the questions that the text asks us seriously. The second question is just this. If we have Ninevehs in our lives, maybe we also have Tarshishes in our lives. So where is yours? Where is the place that you go? Who are the people that you go with? What are the things that you do to drown out the activity of God in your life? When God asks you something difficult, sometimes some of us go places, do things, be with people that turn up and elevate the noise in our lives so we don't have to listen to hear him, to him talk. And we allow sort of the sweet melodies of distraction to lull us into a sense of complacency. And sometimes on the way to Tarshish, God's really trying to get our attention like he is Jonah. God is is arranging storms and, and things that kind of are just trying to shout to him, Jonah, wake up, you can't go to Tarshish. I don't want you to lose this. Jonah's just kind of bent on going there. Do you have that in your life? So I want to suggest to you that Tarshish is not the place to live your life. We miss out an awful lot when we go to Tarshish. And the last question is simply this. Have you become like Jonah in some way? And have you given up on God before God's ready to give up on you? Have you had or are you having that moment in your life where you're just like, I'm done. I've blown it. I can't be used anymore, God. So don't count me in on this anymore. Because Jonah's great sort of illusion that he was living in was that God, God's faithfulness would not overcome his rejection of everything he He was. Jonah turned his back on his vocation. He turned his back on his identity. He wasn't praying. He wasn't worshiping. He wasn't doing anything. But God was basically still like, I'm not done with you, Jonah. You've got to understand, Jonah, I haven't given up on you. And sometimes we live our lives in such a way and we find ourselves in such situations that we surrender to life long before God surrenders uh, on us or gives up on us. And we have to battle back against despair. And we have to believe in the hope that even when we have rejected everything that we believe about ourselves, man, God's still ready to use you. He still wants to use you. And that's a story of so many people in the Bible. People who have made all sorts of mistakes. And their great thing that they did was just they didn't give up on God. I would, I would dare say that that's the story of every pastor here on staff, that we've all had moments where we've said, have I done too much, God? Have I seen too much that you can't use me anymore? And we all had to face that and go, no, I believe that God is 
greater than the things I've done, the things I've seen, the words I've spoken, the places my feet have walked, the things that my eyes have seen. God is greater than all of them. And lastly, I would say that's the story even of Jesus. You see, in a very real way, on Friday, Jesus reached that depth of despair. Whereas he laid in the grave dead. That there was a sense of like, well, that story is over. Don't buy into the fact that the the disciples were just like all copacetic and were like, oh, don't worry. Sunday's coming. No. Friday represented the depth of despair. The story's over. There's the glimmer of hope, but I think maybe this is all she wrote. But at that moment, in the deepest night, when all else has failed, what happens? Resurrection happens. So even as you find yourself tempted to give up on God, I want to suggest to you that that very moment is actually the moment of resurrection. That moment is the moment of new life. And we should not despair, but we should cling to this hope that God's faithfulness is greater than anything that we have done or have not done. And we should walk forward in that hope. Let's pray.